Compton Classic. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to another episode of Colton Classic Podcast. This is the first episode of the new year. Hooray, 2021. Please don't be the dumpster fire that was your predecessor. Uh, I am very excited. I can tell you right off the bat that 2021 is going to be better because this January, this month, starting with this episode, is our very special series, New Year, New Nick. All Nicolas Cage movies, all month long on our main episodes. And we are going to go decade by decade, uh, taking a look at some of his most fantastic and uh, some of his lesser known films. And uh, Nick... I know you're listening out there. We love you. This is all for you. I'm super, super excited to be doing this. Uh, and of course, January is Nicolas Cage's birth month. So there we go. It's a, it's a, it's a heaping pile of celebration for this new year. So for this decade, we are talking about the 80s. And of course, Nick Cage has tons of phenomenal movies during the 80s. We have selected uh, a fairly well-known one and one that is lesser known these days. Uh, and we'll start with them as all of our films for Nick Cage month in chronological order. So first, we have 1984's Birdie, based on the novel. And then we have 1986's Peggy Sue Got Married with Kathleen Turner. Lots to talk about. We're going to start with Birdie. And uh, I'm going to, uh, of course, introduce myself uh, for any new listeners. I'm Nate Wyckoff, your host, comedian, and film critic. And then we also have our resident Nicolas Cage specialist who has seen every Nicolas Cage film, literally, this is not a joke, literally, uh, Greg Johnson. How are you doing, Greg? Uh, well, Nate, uh, you're such a good podcast host. I've decided to let you have whatever you want. Ah, I will send you the list. Uh, we also have longtime member Jeff Tucker. How are you doing, Jeff? Woo! I'm sorry for your speakers, friends and fiends. Uh, yes, very happy to have you. And then we also, of course, have with us Amanda Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? Good. I'm full of cake and ready to cage match. Oh, yes. This is awesome. We were calling it a cage off. Um, so I'm going to dive right in here because this is a movie that I didn't really know about, but it certainly has no lack of, of interesting features, facets, uh, and it was fairly well known uh, in the mid 80s when it arrived on the scene. So again, it's called Birdie. Matthew Modine uh, stars alongside Nicolas Cage. I'm gonna play this clip here uh, from, it's a couple of lines from a couple of different scenes mashed together for the, from the original trailers. Here we go. All wars have their casualties, Sergeant. The army takes care of their own. So in the beginning, we heard um, uh, John Harkins as uh, Dr. Weiss, who is the army doctor who is, is taking care of uh, Birdie, played by Matthew Modine, um, who has become mute and sort of unresponsive to, to human contact. And he's in a mental institution being treated. And they bring in uh, Nicolas Cage's character, Al, who was a childhood friend of Birdie and also went into Vietnam. So this takes place in the 60s, 70s, and, uh, well, the 60s, based off the 1978 play. And uh, Al has his own problems. He's on leave because a uh, uh, mine went off and killed several of his uh, fellow soldiers and bashed up his face. Um, so Nicolas Cage plays everything except for the flashbacks in 
half his face bandaged, sort of a mummy a la Phantom of the Opera. And we're going to start with the fact that this is early in Nick Cage's career. He wasn't unknown by any stretch, but he certainly had not exploded yet. Um, and yet for this role, Nick willingly had two permanent teeth removed um, to fit the character of having shrapnel damage. And, um, and, and since then he's had a replacement false teeth, you know, put drilled, the permanence drilled in, and he wears veneers now. Um, and I will say his, they often say, they say this in the drag community all the time, um, your, your teeth and your dental care is a, a symbol of financial standing. It is not a symbol of, uh, you know, of, of education or anything like that. It truly is. Do you have the money? Then you will have a nice smile. And in, in this case, Nick Cage, his original teeth are not what we're used to as an adult. Um, so he had kind of a, 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 for lack of better words, a little bit of a janky um, smile before. Still very handsome man. Uh, but he did have those two teeth permanently removed. And I, I'm just starting that off because I think if anybody's heard of this movie, that's the fact they probably know. And it is kind of wild because while it fits the character and it's noticeable in the beginning when we first see him with his bandage and everything, that he's missing a tooth here or there, it really is probably not necessary for, for the actual film. Uh, so that was quite a, a method moment that he put in there. But back to the plot. So Dr. Weiss has brought in Al to, to try and... Uh, reminisce with the unresponsive birdie to try and get him to uh, to be a person again, essentially. Now, Al recognizes right away that his friend Birdie, named because he's obsessed with birds and with flying, is standing weird and he's he's sort of hunched over and he's essentially he knows he's acting like a bird because Birdie literally wanted to be a bird. He's he's obsessed uh, and the obsession grew throughout their childhood, and we get this from flashbacks and. What's interesting to me as I was watching this film is, one, the cinematography is beautiful. Um, the soundtrack is excellent, which we'll get into. Um, and then the actual fact that they were both in Vietnam and that this, this turning point in their lives was triggered by events in Vietnam, we see virtually, I mean, very little of their experience in Vietnam. We get the bulk of their formative years as teenagers uh, and then we get a couple of moments of Vietnam, essentially just the moments that injured them and brought them out of the field. Um, I think there's reasons for that, which we can talk about. Uh, to, again, there are spoilers in this podcast, so if you find these movies interesting and you're concerned that we're going to ruin the plot, we will give away plot points. I do not think, as always, that you are going to be spoiled by understanding any of the things we're talking about in the plot, especially with these two films, which are heavy on performances um, rather than... Uh, you know, tweaks and twists of plot, you're going to be getting something from those movies, even if you know what's going to happen. So, spoiler alert, uh, it doesn't seem like Birdie's going to respond at all. Finally, Al gets Birdie to sort of snap out of it and come back to reality. And, uh, and they both end up running from the uh, medical personnel. And they end with a scene which we'll talk about on the roof. So, really... Contemporarily in this film, we have Al trying to get through to Birdie, often yelling at him and sort of fighting his own personal demons at this point in his life as well. And then we have the flashbacks starting with when they first met and their unlikely friendship because 
Al was sort of a quote-unquote normal um, Pennsylvania kid, Philadelphia kid, kind of uh, making it with women, trying to get a quick buck. And Birdie is just a weird kid who really, really likes birds and is trying to train pigeons to be carrier pigeons. Uh, yeah, so I think I've given you the bones of this. It is a coming of age story, but it's also a little bit of a Vietnam story. It's also a little bit of a, uh, an Equus uh, moment where, where there's this sort of uncomfortable animal man connection. So Greg, you'd seen this movie. You of course, being our Nicolas Cage expert in house have, have recommended the films that we're reviewing. What was your understanding of this film before you saw it? And I know you said you saw it when you were younger and watching it again, how do you feel about it now? Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I thought some of the pacing was a little bit, a little bit rough. Um, I forgot how hard it is to kind of figure out the time. And I know that before um, we, we hopped on for the recording today, we had talked about that a little bit. It's kind of hard to place what's happening and when, and then it kind of starts to click. Okay. Like, present time is these two guys in this asylum talking and everything else is moments from the past. Um, I, I don't remember Bertie being really unlikable at times. Um, I think Matthew Modine does a really, really good job with um, his whole character. Um, obviously I remember Nicolas Cage, um, but I, I forgot some of his really solid lines. This was um, definitely a fun film just for him alone. But um, like you'd said, I mean, there's a lot going on in this film that's really, really good. Um, I just think it's, it can get a little slow at points and a little confusing to keep track of where you're at. Yeah. I think that, I would say too, I, I was grateful for the physical cues of Nick Cage's bandages the whole time um, in the present because it really was easier for me when I saw him then to understand, oh, we're in the present time versus the past. But in the past time, I didn't see their age progressing. You know, they, they're the same person, right? And they don't age them at all because they're mostly, I guess I'm to assume within the same five or six years um, that they become friends. It's hard to tell. Um, also, well, uh, to your point about him removing two teeth, um, I think it's kind of interesting that like, what, before this, he'd done um, like a TV special, he was on uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he cameo or, you know, showed up, he was a background guy. Um, and he'd done like one other movie where he'd been just a pretty boy. So for him to kind of take this drastic role where half the film he's in a bandage and removes two teeth yeah it's kind of a kind of a wild beginning for someone that's who he is now yeah because i mean he he'd done he'd done a couple he was getting a name because he'd done valley girl he i don't consider fast times at ridgemont high because he was really a bit part um but he was in rumble fish and so i think he was he was climbing up through those strong indie leads if that makes sense the, the listener and then this was like where he truly dedicated himself. Like there was clearly, I mean, if you're having teeth removed, you know, this is what you're going to do one way or the other, you're going to do this. And I think that was, I can only guess, hopefully we'll get the chance to ask him, but I can only guess that that was the intent is I am serious. This is what I'm going to do. This is not a one-off. He's done many things to sort of become the characters uh, in this method element. And, uh, and I just thought it was interesting because I, I would, 
love to know, but it seems like the teeth removal was potentially more for him to get into character than it was for us as the audience. Because like I said, this you can see he's missing a tooth, um, but half of his mouth is obscured by the bandage shadow anyway. So you only see, you only ever are exposed to one of the missing teeth that, that he had to removed of. Um, it could have just been a different injury or, you know, I mean, it did, sure. yeah, it there wasn't, wasn't like, there wasn't like a really important scene where he loses teeth that then right. connects to it's, that character. The important part he does, there is, we'll talk about, I'm sure there is some um, physical concern that he has about his face, but the teeth, exactly. It's not even directly referenced. Jeff, had you seen this movie before? Uh, and what was your experience watching it this time coming out? Nope. Um, and actually, when I read like the tagline, I kind of I was kind of expecting a very over the top like bird performance, um, and then you know it was kind of a very subtle, nuanced. Not even I, I thought Nick Cage was going to be birdie, just uh, you know based on the fact that the tagline just was very simple. as like you know, person thinks they're bird. Yeah, well, um, I think. Matthew Modine, of course, like I said, plays Birdie, and he really, he, he sort of does what we would expect from uh, an Oscar performance contender, you know what I mean? Like, we, there's the joke in Tropic Thunder, you know, Ben Stiller's brilliant opus, where, like, it, it, they make fun of um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character being the one who's going for the roles, you know, never this isn't an appropriate term, but they have the quote, never go full retard. You know what I mean? Like where it's like, don't, if you want to, if you want to win awards as an actor, you play someone who is off. They're not, they're not perfectly in line with social understanding. And, but if you go too far and you look like a cartoon crazy person, then you're not going to get the nod. If you, if, or if you're hyper realistic to the point where they feel like you're exploitative, you're not going to get the role, which is sort of this weird double-edged sword. And I think Matthew Modine does a good job of skirting that. He plays this character who is a friend of, of Al, but is also, I mean, he has a really unhealthy fixation and relationship with birds. Um, and, and his understanding of it breaks down the more and more the film goes on until right before, um, we don't know if Al is drafted or if he goes into the military willingly, but we know that they have a fight beforehand because Al says, you have to get back to reality and stop it with this weird bird crap. And then he goes to the military. And then we know that afterward, uh, Birdie is drafted. And I want to get to, to Mandy first before we dive into some of these really interesting thoughts that have been pinging around in my brain about this film. Mandy, what did you expect going in? And now what's your take on it now that you've seen it? So I had seen... Uh, a few scenes of this movie. I'd not seen the whole thing, but I'd seen some of like the more iconic um, segments of this film um, previously. Uh, had I don't think I'd seen the trailer or anything. Um, it was really, really good to see it all together from beginning to end. Obviously, like to actually watch it as a full film. I uh, really appreciated like the performances on um, that were put forward. It was really uh, pretty cool to see one of Nick Cage's like first films and like what he was like as an actor at that time which I mean there's definitely a lot of Nick Cage in there <laughs> is he is true to himself um, or is still true to himself and who he was at that time um, even today so that was very cool yeah I think this is this is something else to know so this film um, 
I think part of what Greg might have been getting at with the slow parts is this film takes itself very seriously, even though there is humor in it. It is clearly intended to be a highbrow film. Um, and I think that sometimes we get, and I think there's, there's we'll talk about this too when we get to Peggy Sue Got Married, there is intentional space between the scenes, so to speak, where it's, it's sort of to indicate realism, but also to make the audience sit with a concept or a thought or a scene. And I mean, I, I hazard to call it a crutch, but sometimes I do feel like it is a crutch in a film. Uh, independent films fall into it all the time where they use that in place of um, other there's, scenes that could be more telling. There's definitely a lot of scenes that felt for everyone's real versus to yeah. kind of further the plot. Yeah, and, and I think, and the director of this film, um, Alan Parker, he makes for the most part, very good films. Um, he, he directed Midnight Express. Uh, he directed um, the Mississippi Burning, uh, which is a, a personal favorite of mine growing up with Willem Dafoe and Gene Hackman. So he's, he had the chops and he, this is not his only you know, film. He really knew what he was doing. And they did a lot of things in this movie, interesting camera work, um, perspective of birds. They did stuff that's never been done. Um, but, I think what comes down to is there's a lot of stuff to focus on and unpack in this movie and it's not short. It's almost two hours long. And I think that it, if it was a little more focused, it might've been more powerful. I still think it was a powerful film. Um, I enjoyed this film. It affected me, but what affected me most was not the Vietnam commentary of which there's fairly little uh, direct commentary, I thought. And it's not the um, friendship of these two growing up in Brooklyn, these unlikely pair, as they like to call it. Um, it was Birdie's obsession. Because, uh, and while I have not read Wharton's book, um, in the book, uh, I, I guess Birdie explicitly believes that he is a bird at one point. And he raises a brood of chicks with, his, with a, a female uh, bird that he falls in love with. And that sort of is in this film. He has a little uh, pen built in his room, his parents' house in his room. And he has a bird that he clearly has, I'm not even gonna say an unhealthy relationship because he doesn't, there's no, there's no harm that comes to the bird. He just takes really good care of the bird and watches it every second of the day. Then gets a breeding pair and then there are chicks. Um, and of course there's the scene that I was dreading anytime and there's an animal in a film that somebody is close to, it eventually dies somehow. Uh, and I always dread that, but Matthew Modine does a great job. I mean, instead of, you know, he, he has this sexual tension. He has a wet dream about the bird, uh, but it's more than just the sexual thrill. He actually feels like he's flying and he has um, on prom night, there's this girl who really wants to have sex with him and instead he goes home, strips down naked and then lays in the bird's cage. And I mean, there's, there's bird shit on him for her to be quite clear. It's just, it's a very, it's very equus. Like that was the moment I got, you know, the, the new boy riding a horse, you know, through the, through the field. It's just a, a mind altering moment where you're like, this is not healthy. Um, whether or not it's true, like true love or whatever the case is, it's just you're like, this isn't healthy because it cannot end well. Um, and I mean, to me, that was the most powerful. 
I, I'm glad that they toned it down from the book, honestly. Um, I've yeah. never read the book, but I, I had heard that the book gets a lot more explicit about what he thinks about these birds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would take away from it in a film. I think in a book, it'd be really engaging because you're just there reading it and it's so intense. You're like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. But in the movie, it really is more about kind of him trying to come back to reality and is he going to come back and kind of the strange story of these two um which i i was here's what you all kind of thought about um with nicholas cage's character that he's supposed to be like the cool fun one the normal one quote unquote but i felt like the film kind of pitches you an idea that maybe birdie in some ways is kind of living the life he wishes he could have like kind of this weird obsessive life um because otherwise i don't see a reason why they're friends the whole movie i don't see anything in common but for some reason um um the character of al cage's character um really enjoys what birdie does he enjoys all the weird stuff and not like in a like I'm laughing at you way, but a like this is like this is fun. This takes me out of my shell. I enjoy dressing up like a bird with you and breaking into some <laughs> industrial <laughs> complex. Yeah, yeah. It, so that's an interesting question, and I want to. I always talk a lot, and I want to give Jeff and Mandy a chance, but it really hits the head that I was thinking of this in the end when. Um, he only has a few months. He's essentially supposed to say goodbye to Birdie. And because the doctor's like, this treatment hasn't worked. You got to go back to Fort Bragg. Birdie's going to go on some new medication and treatment. Um, and Al is cradling him. And of course, he breaks through finally to him and, and Birdie speaks again. But he's like, I'm not going to leave you again. And then he gives this speech that it, it finally tuned me in personally to what I thought they were trying to get to. And I, and I think this is where you're going, Greg, is that Birdie even though he lives in this fantasy, it turns out was more of the realist because it seems like ever since we first see him and his obsession with birds, he realizes that he has no control over his life and his, and his path and destiny. And so he's, he's desperately wishes or just fantasizes and ultimately believes that he is a bird because the freedom is what he wants. And he knows that he doesn't have it in his life. And so his fantasy is where he's going to get it. And in that final speech, we hear, um, and it touches on, of course, the Vietnam, is that Al then believes that he's like, you were right. You were right to live in the fantasy. I always thought that I was in control. And now, we presume war has shown that he has no control, uh, as none of us do, really, in our lives. Um, and this lack of control then is, is sort of crushing to Al. He can't handle it in a way, whereas Birdie has found a way to handle it, even though it is a radically unhealthy way to handle it by most opinions. But it's sort of like, and I think that's the twist that they want us to see that releases Birdie from his inability to speak is that, because the part, he's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And the fight that Al and Birdie had before Al went to war, which presumably is the last time they talked, um, he says, uh, uh, Birdie is like, I, th- I thought, you were the one that understood and that you understood me. And I was like, no, I don't understand it. But now wrap around after they both, uh, they're both getting discharged. uh, And in this situation, he's like, you were right. I get it. I get it. And so it's almost like the understanding 
between the two of them is Enrique has been connected and that's what breaks Bertie out of it and it's enough to bring him back and that's what frees Al to some extent. Um, Jeff, Mandy, what are you so, going to feel about that? Like in, a, in terms of like, like a psychology, psych, uh, psychological diagnosis of Bertie, you'd probably describe it as like dissociative state. So I was, you know. They actually use that so, term in there, yeah. Yeah, like a dissociative state is triggered by trauma, and then you essentially, person under the dissociative state, thinks of themselves as either a different person, or in this case, a um, being word. Um, now, the, you know, th this one would be particularly tricky because you can't communicate with them, and that's typically how you help the person. You know? So it you're actually cutting, you're cutting a, out a bit. Oh, sorry. Am I? Uh... Just want to make sure we get all of your brilliant things. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know how to fix that. I don't know. You're good. Um, so the. So actually, the way that it actually is structured in in terms of, like they brought in somebody familiar to him to, actually be able to speak to him, because uh, you know, therapist trying to break break into this person, you don't know. How to communicate to them because they don't know any context to their life. So it kind of makes sense. Um, it, just the, the structure of the way the movie ended up working out. Like I expected they're telling this big story of, of his life. It's, it's almost like we're going through the therapy. with him. That mm -hmm. was like kind of the narrative, which was, it's very strange. Like I almost thought we were hearing the story of his life and eventually we were going to see trauma in his life that re resulted in, in the dissociative state. But then it was, I don't want to say the obvious answer, but or was well, the, it's was like he was it was pre-existent, right? Like his obsession and his um, the beginnings of well, his, his obsession was pre-existent, but then the trauma came from war. Mm -hmm. So it's right the, the obsession with birds plus the at least that that's the way I took it in this film. It may have been different in the book, uh, but his obsession with the birds came before, and then the trauma came from war. Those combined became the dissociative state of them. I think that's, I think that makes sense. Mandy, did you have, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would say like, I mean, like he obviously had uh, an escape route for the dissociative state to like, you know, to go to. He had something to kind of like slide into there pretty easily. Um, it was interesting like that um, there was, I mean, there was some commentary on Bertie's uh, character and behavior like while they were in high school um, people just thinking that he was weird I also agree with Greg that it just didn't seem to like the friendship didn't seem to make sense um, like in any real way other than like I mean um, well Al's father was uh, Al's father was horribly abusive it seems like uh, they didn't show a whole lot but you could tell like the family was all very nervous about confronting him about anything. Um, so Al may have just needed like a safe friend that wasn't gonna judge him for what was going on in his household. But you don't know um, what that might've been. You could also tell that he was extremely close and like protective of his younger brother, which there was a pretty big age gap there, which they didn't really go into either. And I thought that was also a little odd, like how like that relation Ship dynamic was between him and his much younger brother. And the brother just um, disappearing. 
Well, he did. He did. Yeah. See, like we didn't see it. Like they didn't actually mm-hmm. film any scenes where they were laughing and having a good time. But he did talk mm-hmm. about it a lot to him in the uh, you know in the hospital. Institution. He mm-hmm. was like, "You remember that time we would laugh and you know?" And he would. Mm-hmm. He also just. He also said multiple times, "He's like, you know, if you could see yourself, you would be laughing." So I don't know if right. he had like a different understanding of this character than we did, um, mm. or if it just was all off, you know, essentially off camera. But that bits were weird to me. And now that you've mentioned that the friendship is weird, I, I agree. Well, like what was shot. So I also had this very like strange sense. feeling through a lot of the film that Birdie and Al were the same person, and then we were going to find out at the end of the film that like they were just treating Al, and bad. like <laughs> Al's dissociative state was Birdie. Mm. And he yeah. had, like, the split personality thing that. going on. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, it could have been that. I mean, I, th- there's another reading of this film, um, not so much the book, in my understanding, but the film, which I think you could make an argument for, which kind of could piece together some of their connection that we don't get, which is um, that either Birdie or Al and Birdie uh, are, are dealing with some level of homosexuality. Um, mm-hmm. And there is a great deal of physical contact in the hospital between, of a very um, Eros love, you know, a very tender love um, between Al and Birdie when Birdie is not being responsive. Al is caressing his face. He's holding very close. These, of course, could also just be, you know, uh, really close friendship bonds. But I think you can make the argument, especially... With uh, Al uh, always asking Birdie to join wrestling team and wrestle with him. And why don't we wrestle, Birdie? <laughs> yes, yes. The, the physical then, contact is always heavily yeah. driven. And specifically saying, like, we weren't queer for each other or anything. Yeah, like, that was one like, of the oh, first. Like, oh, the denial? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was one of the first things he says. Um, and, of course, mm-hmm. he is dealing with a military doctor at military hospital. So I'm sure it's that true. it came up often. Um, but mm-hmm. we also have those bits, like, uh, you know, it would explain potentially Birdie's uh, sexual um, uh, oddity with birds in a way that- just way asexual to me. Like, I, yeah, I, I agree. That was really like a word. I don't, I don't know that he's asexual though, because he clearly wants to have some sort of sexual relationship and does with the birds. Um, so he may not be sexual with people, um, yeah. but he might be asexual. But he- often is pulling focus um, when there's the scene when they're out at the to the beach because um, Birdie's never been to the beach and Al lets him go in the water and he's like it's like swimming through thick air kind of thing um, and then they go and pick up chicks and of course there's two women but really uh, Birdie has zero interest um, and Al's like you need to get social skills but really it's not social skills Birdie wants nothing to do with the women at all um, and we get some scenes in the montage where he's trying to pull them to go do something else. Uh, and then we get the scene where, you know, they're all just sitting under the pier and uh, Al and one of the girls are having sex like four feet away. And it's like, it's just a very weird scene. And so we know that Birdie has uh, odd sexual preferences. What we don't mm. know is if it's really that he's attracted to such an extent to birds that it's with, it's like, you know, Phil Hartman's character in The Simpsons, you know, uh, where it's like, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that brilliant episode with Troy McClure, where uh, the mobsters are like, um, I thought you said he was dead. No, I said he sleeps with the fishes. You know, like, it's, it's, no, it's a very weird sexual thing. So either that's true, or maybe he's 
potentially gay. Because like I said, I don't think we could, I couldn't make an effective argument for asexuality because he has some well, so sort of sexual you, desire. Here's, here's like kind of the, the, well, so asexual just means you have either none or low. Uh, the, the way I took it is his obsession with birds had nothing to do with sex. It was just hired the birds and loved them. You're, you're cutting out a bit again. I lost that bit. But I mean, he does have a wet dream about the bird. Yeah, but um, I mean, but but that I think is uh, maybe coming from being so close to them, he eventually has some sexual desire come from that. I've got my cat right think next that, to me all day, and I don't have wet dreams about my cat. Well, yeah, but you but don't, also don't sit not... there. You don't sit there and build a cage for it and stare at it all day. <laughs> I mean, like, she does and, have and, a nest. And start thinking of yourself as a cat. I'm just saying that there's yeah. like. A, um, I don't think that he came to the love of the birds from anything that was sexual. Yeah, and I guess I saw yeah, it as he was sexually aroused by the idea of flying and okay. was like jealous of the birds and thought that they were his people and hanging among them. But I do I do agree with you, Nate, that it's it's a hard stance to 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 ascribe any sexuality to Correct. the character of Birdie. Yeah, yeah. and I mean and 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 so a low sex drive, I think, I, think, I think my problem with the asexuality argument is, is what you just said, Greg, which is he is attracted, whether it's to birds or to the, art of, or to the act of flying and freedom, that is an attraction and a desire, That's fair. which would typically be absent from the traditional asexual definition. So, but regardless, it's a weird, weird path that the movie goes on. Um, yeah. and, and I would hazard to say that that's why this is not one of those, um, hey, it's Brooklyn, let's go, in like coming of age movies, or in this case, hey, it's Philadelphia, coming of age movies um, that we're so familiar with. Why this is not in there is because of that whole Equus vibe, um, the animalistic bestiality or just uh, sexual um, unusualness. Uh, I love that Birdie is not the movie in no way vilifies his feelings. In fact, it's quite beautiful, right? Like his, he really is, he loves birds to the extent where he is just amazed and, and blown away by every aspect of them. Um, and I, I think that's really amazing. And, and he, he does it in such a way where it does, even though, and I think this might be where some of the vibe to push the asexuality, he does it in a very pure way. Right, like his his affection for birds is not it's never it's never dirty if that makes sense. Um, at least I didn't feel that way. Uh, but Could it help that they have that scene with the dogs where they show that he kind of has mm -hmm. an animal affinity generally, and so does um, Cage's character, which is nice because and that was one thing I did like too because Cage's character of Al is supposed to be like the the popular kid and he's good with the ladies and and you know he's this uh and he can fix a car when he wants to like this sort of archetypal um italian kid in the city in the 60s he he did care about animals and he did care about the right thing um he didn't have a great he didn't have a, a, a great outlook on women they seem to be just vessels to have sex with um but that also seems to be different at least his focus is different later on after the war, right? Because the nurse, he sort of comes onto her in a physical way and then she reciprocates and he stops. He's like, this is not where I'm at. Uh, and so we could maybe read into a, a change there, but can we talk about the last scene here? Because I was left sitting there like, what, 
Did, what? Because unlike so many of these movies um, that deal with Vietnam or coming of age or mental illness, uh, it ends with a joke. Uh, and it's not, a hot, it's not like a knock-knock joke. What happens is, is they're running from the, uh, the orderlies in this hospital and they get to the roof and when Al is barricading the door with all this random roof junk, which apparently isn't nailed down, um, Birdie runs to the edge of the roof and spreads his wings and he jumps and Al screams after him. And I assume like me, because so many stories of PTSD of which this movie certainly is in some ways, ends with suicide as it really does in our real world. Um, we assume that he is going to fly and he's going to die. And Al runs over to the edge and he looks over the edge and he screams after him like, Birdie! And Birdie is just on another like three foot, four foot down drop level roof. And he looks back at him and goes, what? And that's what we end with. Um, it's nice that we don't have like a double suicide or a death on our hands like in the movie. And it is funny, but it, it is, to me, it was a very strange, strange way to end this story, which in its entirety is, is really not funny. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's the way you end it because there is no other ending. Um, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a good way to end, like have some sort of conclusion to that film that's not unpleasant or just like endless because it's because really like you know oh like we're not going to sit in therapy with this person for the next six months and, and watch that um and yeah i, I don't even I, who knows where they even end up right so i i don't know it's 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 a weird it's a weird film to 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 make and then i i just can't see a better conclusion than just ending it in a weird joke I mean, it reminds me a lot of, um, obviously it's not on the same level as this, but uh, the Batman comic, The Last Laugh, mm -hmm. where it ends on this kind of joke about a mental institution. Um, and I also, I thought that it just showed that the point was Birdie wasn't crazy. Like Birdie had this really weird obsession, but deep down, like, you know, if he was actually crazy, he would have immediately ran to a cliff and tried to jump off and fly but he had some sense of you know self-preservation he understood the laws of physics and reality to well, an extent and of course none of us are psychologists or trained in psychology but from the no not at all just perspective jeff you had a point i mean disassociated disorder as my understanding often comes as a it is a protection when you can't handle the reality or it's too painful or too difficult or you're under abuse you disassociate with the reality in front of you to a place where your mind can protect you in your own fantasy of some kind. And now that that's broken, um, because presumably has Al again and Al understands, he is normal and that is nice. Um, I, I'll be honest, I expected suicide and it would have, I actually think this movie probably would have been better known had it ended with suicide. Um, I'm not saying it's the right ending. I'm saying that mm. it's the Hollywood ending. Um, mm. Because as much as films like Rambo originally ended in suicide uh, of the main character uh, and then audiences are like that, we can't take that, you know, so they're going to back it up. I think that the damage, as you said, there's damage done. And it oftentimes when we deal with mental illness in film, the damage done is, is unable to be addressed in the film its purpose then is to raise some sort of awareness. And that's most effectively done by shocking or depressing the audience. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of like that it didn't end that way. And I mean, it is a funny joke, but it's a weird thing because when you end on a joke like that, it makes the audience double back and be like, was this a setup? Was this a two hour long setup to this joke? Um, all of the last lap actually. I mean, so kind of like, it, it, it is an interesting way to do it. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't hate it, but yeah. I'm thinking about it. And I, I, there's definitely, because I'm thinking about it, there's a reason why it's not done very often. I, I just took it as it like, just very clearly showing that Birdie was back to his normal self. Yeah. For whatever normal means for him. But right. it was just like, oh yeah, no, that's just, that's exactly what he would have done if they were out in Philadelphia as teenagers running around on a roof. Like, yeah. 100%. Yeah, maybe we could all just agree on one less La Bamba right at the end. Just take that out. <laughs> I, so anyway, so I actually, so we'll get to the end of this segment here. Um, I'll start. Uh, who would I recommend this film to? I actually really enjoyed this film. Um, it, it took me to places I did not expect it to. Uh, it does break the mold, as far as I'm concerned, for a lot of what people would consider uh, coming-of-age films, which this seems to be billed as a lot. Um, if you watch the trailer, the original release trailer, it's a dis bizarre mix of, like, the deer hunter with, like, um, coming to America. It's just not coming to America. Oh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Don't know why I got this confused in my brain. It's just, it's not accurate to what the film is, but I understand why the film is very difficult to categorize. Uh, it's sort of like if you took Equus and you mixed it with um, the Chris Evans Captain America film, and then you set it in Philly and, uh, and you had a lot of birds. It's really weird. And so to be such a high quality film that took such chances with its content um, I, I find that appealing. And so if anyone is interested in that, if you're the kind who likes epic films that typically are maybe the, the one foreign film that breaks through in the United States and wins an award or something with a really visual shine on a AAA title level like War Horse or something, give this movie a shot. I think you'll be surprised. Um, and I, I, I think that the odd content is probably why it's not better known contemporarily. Greg. Who would you recommend Birdie to and why? Well, spoiler, I recommend Nicolas Cage films to everyone nonstop year round. Um, but this one, um, if you've ever called yourself a connoisseur of film and meant it without any trace of irony, this is a film for you. Um, but also if, if you have only ever seen him in Wicker Man and you're like, this is Nicolas Cage, I'd consider watching this one. I think it will shock you the range he has. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's, it's a serious film for people that kind of want something a little more dramatic. Very good. And it is certainly dramatic. Mandy, who would you recommend Birdie to and why? Um, it's similar to Greg. Like if you like dramas, this is a great drama, great character piece. Um, I'd also say like, if you happen to have someone in your life who is not neurotypical and is looking for something with some representation in a manner that does not vilify um, like differences um, in how people experience the world um, or their interests, like this would be a really good one. I think it it shows Birdie as a positive character um, with purpose in his life and interests, and um, that people really deeply care about him. So, yeah, 
Yeah, it's sort of, I, I like the idea that Bertie, it's sort of like the idea of having faith that you matter to someone, whether or not you know it or not. I mean, Bertie is clearly so essential to Al's well-being, and yet Bertie very possibly at their last meeting did not feel that his friendship was reciprocated. And now we get to this point after tragedy and we realize that not only is it, but it always was. And that's, uh, can make us all feel a little more connected. Jeff, who would you recommend Birdie 1984 to and why? Um, yeah, I mean, I think people that, you know, like to think after their films and you know, maybe discuss things after their films. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of things going on in this film, a lot of ideas uh, you know, a lot of, you know, stuff that was happening in the 80s that, you know, we wouldn't would maybe frown on now. It feels like, you know, we, we were, I think everybody here was born in the 80s and uh, feels feels like it was really close, but, uh, you know, things have changed a lot since then. Um, so, true. yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot here. And trigger warnings, uh, there is, as was mentioned before we started recording, the uh, whole, like, no means yes moment. It's not as brutally painful as say Rocky um, it, but it is that moment and it, it fits within the character of Al um, and, but it's a behavior that I'm sure was accepted and we know for a fact has been accepted historically but is now is not acceptable uh, and really it shouldn't have been acceptable then and also trigger warning to people concerned about animal treatment in films I don't think any animals were harmed in the making of this film for the making of this film um, as we know, animal treatment in entertainment industry has not always been great. Um, PETA, as much as they have other things that are problematic, they do do a good job of sort of blowing the whistle on uh, entertainment and animal handling in Hollywood that is done wrong. Uh, I believe Gary Gino was the animal hander, handler on this, and there was a lot of animal work. Uh, his company, BAU, was cited uh, before for for what most consider minor, but still unfortunate things like uh, malnourishment and, and lack of effective treatment for veterinary issues. Not to the extent of some horrible things we've heard, and this was pre that era, but again, there are animals in here. There are at least one dead bird and you always gotta wonder where they get it. And that always makes me a little uncomfortable. But other than that, fairly tame. So. We are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with Peggy Sue Got Married. Hey, cult and classic crew, friends and fiends of the pod, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nate, I don't have any money, and if I did, I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the cult and classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support cultandclassicpodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist and also zines like classic issues of rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews as well as brand new cult and classic podcast family publications that uh, are brand new so you'll get them first in line these are awesome, awesome things that you can get just by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get videos of our episodes. So you can see all our lovely shining faces as well as exclusive content like 
uh, extra episodes, film reviews, book reviews, and things like commentary by us on our short films, which you'll also be able to see. If you want to pay a little more, $5 a month per se, US, then you get an awesome autographed custom trading card. These are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought and they're autographed by the artist. These are exclusively for Colton Classic Podcast and inspired by our episodes. They, you can't get them anywhere else except through us. Only $5 a month, you get it shipped right to you. Shipping is free. If you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for ColtonClassicPodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of Rearded Zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Colton Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus there's usually extras like pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You are spending money on awesome swag and you are supporting Colton Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Colton Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just going to say it. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. And we are back. Okay. A couple of notes because we always forget a couple of things that I want to mention um, before the break. Birdie has an amazing soundtrack that right away gets you into this sort of oddball, strange, slightly ominous story. And it's it's by Peter Gabriel, a, a 80s icon, um, singer, songwriter for Sledgehammer, um, one of the progenitors of the best music videos in history. Really great. Uh, it is it is definitely during his tribal phase, so there's a lot of percussion and drums. It just works with that movie, and it is it is a fantastic score. So give that a listen. Also want to mention that Danny Glover actually had a scene filmed for Birdie. Uh, Danny Glover, of course, of uh, Lethal Weapon fame and many other things. Um, but they cut it, uh, according to director, because he couldn't get his lines right. So that's really unfortunate. But he was he does have film scenes for that. I don't know if that's available on any distribution distributed cut of this film, but I would love to see it. So if anybody does know that, give us a shout out. But interesting fact nonetheless. So we are going now to two years later, 1986's Peggy Sue Got Married. So uh, right off the bat, I know what you're asking in the question, and the answer is yes. Um, Nicolas Cage has veneers by this point. Um, this movie, Nicolas Cage is a supporting lead, I would say, and the lead is Kathleen Turner, of course, from Romancing the Stone, Serial uh, Mom for true cult fans, all sorts of great things. And of course, um, I most recently remember uh, Kathleen Turner from playing the um, Monogatron Queen in Rick and Morty. So you can have that. Uh, yeah, so it's it, this this cast is amazing um, in this. There, there are so many side characters that are, are well-known actors, and it is a film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who is, I, I believe, arguably the best American uh, director, uh, maybe rivaled only by Martin Scorsese. So he's, he, 
Francis Ford Coppola can do no wrong from a directing standpoint. Uh, he, may, he may make choices, but he always makes them boldly and comes out with a compelling product. Of course, his opus being Godfather. So, And he's uh, Nicolas Cage's uncle, right? Correct, yes. Nicolas Cage's birth name, I guess, is Nicholas Kim Coppola. Uh, and so, And he changed it because he didn't want to be um, basically given favoritism because of his lineage. And interestingly enough, uh, when he was uh, cast for Birdie, they apparently didn't know that he was related to Francois Coppola. So that's, that's a nice, you know, it's kind of nice when you say, well, you know, he's, we cast him not because of his name, but because of his skill and because of the fact that he wanted to get two teeth pulled for the role. So this movie, uh, Peggy Sue Got Married, it's a different movie. It's another drama. It's also a comedy. It is a dramedy. And it's a time travel movie. I'm going to say up front, there are only a couple of film genres that I usually don't like that much and I'm not excited about. Time travel is one of them. The other is natural disaster films. Uh, both of them have their exceptions that I love, uh, but I'll get into why I have a problem with time travel movies. Uh, and it is not a scientific reason. It is purely a plot device reason. But anyway, the, the plot is, is that Kathleen Turner's character, Peggy Sue, is going to her like 20 year, I think, um, high school reunion, 25 year high school reunion, 27 year, 25. Mandy's giving me hand signals over Zoom and she's giving me numbers. Now I get it, 25 year but, reunion. Um, which is but, a very weird reunion, I guess like quarter century, but like usually you do them every 10 years. It's a, it's a weird, you gotta sparse them closer weird. together, right? Cause then you're dying off. Yeah, so. it's a real, so there's some weird things time-wise and visual and casting-wise here that I want to talk about. Um, so what happens is, is it starts and she's with her daughter um, and she is Kathleen Turner's character and she's still, she's quite beautiful in this, I think. She is dressed in what is clearly like a vintage promish gown, very shiny. Um, and her daughter is, uh, like I said, the cast in this is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, is Hall, uh, uh, Helen Hunt right, is her daughter, um, and uh, she doesn't really have much of a role, um, but we have this great opening scene where it opens with a TV playing a commercial with, uh, uh, with Nick Cage's character, who has this big bouffant of hair, like doing crazy things with a shrimp cocktail to try and sell his appliances. So it opens with this ridiculous commercial, which is fun, and then pans out and, um, uh, and Catherine Turner's character, Peggy Sue, and her daughter are getting ready to go to this 25-year uh, reunion. And the reason that Helen Hunt is going with her mom is because her mom and dad are separated and, and uh, getting a divorce. So that's the setup. And when they go to the reunion, Kathleen Turner's character is horrified. She's like, no one looks like they're, they're not dressed retro. I look like ridiculous. But then she starts to get into it. She's meeting their, her best friends um, who are, are played by also well-known uh, actresses. We have uh, as her, her sort of sexy friend, Kathleen Hicks, who is, I know her most from playing uh, Karen, the mom in Child's Play. Uh, and then we have Joan Allen, who uh, has been in also a million things. I always think of her as Pat Nixon from 95's Nixon, but she's been in many things. So we have the friends uh, and they start to reconnect. Everything's going great. Uh, but then Nick Cage's character shows up 
and she starts to get really panicky. And then when she's brought in as prom queen, or excuse me, as a, uh, what do they call them? When they're king and queen of the, uh, of the reunion. I don't know. Reunion king. The biggest losers. Ah. Uh, So whatever the case is, she's like, and she goes up. And then when she's up there and everyone's saying how great she is and she gets to the mic, she, she faints. When she wakes up, she is uh, in a, in a little gurney having given blood back in high school in 1960. And she is essentially living her life over again, but with her future brain. And some hijinks ensue. She ends up sowing her wild oats. She, d- she ditches uh, Nick Cage as her boyfriend and has a little fling with a beatnik. Um, and then she has sort of a relationship with the smart kid who you know made it rich in the future, who everyone thought was a nerd because he was a nerd. And, um, and she has these relationships and no matter what she can do, it kind of always leads back to Nicolas Cage's character and her being together. And then eventually, uh, again, minor spoilers, her grandfather, who's like, I believe you, takes her to a Shriners meeting of his where the, they believe that a time traveler founded the club and that they can send her back with a ritual. So uh, spoiler alert, the ritual does not work. Um, and what does work is uh, having sex with Nicolas Cage in a greenhouse. She wakes up in the present time, she's in a hospital and Nick Cage is there and it's like, I wanna be with you. And she basically tells him, take it slow. Do you wanna come over for dinner? And that's kind of how it ends. So it's set up like a rom-com, but it's a little bit more drama and a little bit higher brow than the traditional, you know, um, how to lose a guy in 10 days rom-com. Let's just go into what we think about this movie before I let on uh, my issues with it. Uh, And again, it's a very well done movie. I don't think this is a poorly made movie, but I did have some problems with it. Mandy, had you seen this film before and what do you think of it now? And not seen this film before. I had no idea that anything like this existed with Nicolas Cage in it. <laughs> um, I thought it was um, fun. Uh, I thought it was thought provoking in the sense that I'm I don't know what the target audience is for this, but I am closer to my 25th high school reunion than I am my high school graduation. So it was sort of like, well, you know, like the people that I knew in high school and like where they are where they are today and like what would you tell them if you went back? And like those kinds of thoughts. Uh, it's kind of fun to explore with this movie. That's that's what I thought. Okay, that's fair. Jeff, yeah. have you seen had you seen this movie, and what do you think now? I have never seen this film. Uh, I have I have seen most of it now, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I did I did like it, uh, but it is um, you know a genre of film that I'm not uh, too keen on as well. Uh, time travel and resurrection just just really send shivers up my spine every single time they're used. I I loathe them. Um, so, yeah. Beyond Can you just that, say that you're a Dragon Ball Z fan and you're coming after Resurrection like that? I mean, yeah. how did God not strike you down with a lightning bolt right now? <laughs> um, okay, Greg, you've seen this film, of course, but um, watching it this time, what's your take and overall um, feeling about this movie? Um, I love this movie. Um, 
I was really happy rewatching it that it's basically exactly as I remember it. It's it's funny. It's it's light. Um, like Mandy said, I like that it has some heart to it. It's a, one of the only time travel movies I can think of where people go back and like there's you know the scene where she's like almost cries on the phone talking to her grandmother again. And yeah, I mean I'm. I'm starting to think about like, you know, who, who was alive when I was in high school that's dead now and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's the movie angle as the cage angle. Um, he does this stupid, stupid accent and I love it to death. It, it I is love so it. great. What is it? I was not, it la- so great. I, I laughed every so, scene. Here, every I, have, scene. <laughs> I have a guess at it and it, it's a bit of a story. Um, in the movie G force, he plays a talking gerbil. Gerbil, yeah, no, no, I think he's Aren't a they? mole, a mole or something. Oh, he's some okay. other animal, but supposedly, yeah, supposedly the rumor is that was like a payback film for him, where he got to do something else that he really wanted, and he was told, "Well, this is what you're doing to kind of make good." Probably Sorcerer's like, Apprentice. Yeah, and he was like, "Okay, I'll do it, but I I want to do a voice. I don't want it to be my voice." And it was this voice that supposedly he'd been workshopping and kind of doing something crazy because he always likes to do something new. And I think his voice in this sounds a lot like his voice in that. And I'm wondering if this is like some epic saga of this voice Nicolas Cage had been working on for years and tried out in some movies and finally turned into <laughs> this this voice that he did in g-force of all things this is amazing um, so i will say this the voice (laughs) is for those of you who haven't seen the film um it is just basically a high version of his voice but because he's sort of forcing this not quite falsetto but this halfway there voice where he's kind of like this the whole time like he loses that sort of um inner city kid accent that he has naturally and I will say that he is very consistent throughout this film with that voice. Um, I mean, he, he really does. It, it's, it sounds like he's been dubbed the whole movie because I think all of us at this point know Nicolas Cage's natural voice and cadence. And it sounds like he's been dubbed. Um, only a couple of times when he gets gruff do we hear any inkling of his normal voice at all. Um, and it, it is unsettling. Uh, because it is so weird. And also, as I said, he has this bouffant of hair. If anybody knows the famous uh, Puerto Rican fortune teller, very famous, Walter Mercado, um, he looked like, or if you watch RuPaul's Drag Race, Alexis Mateo did uh, an impersonation of him on Snatch Game. And there's a Netflix documentary that's really cool called Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. And he, I, I couldn't not think about Walter Mercado looking at him because he's very pallid in this movie and his hair is weirdly blonde sometimes, almost like faded blonde, um, like a wig that's that's been left in the sun a long time, a synthetic. It's just, it's very different looking for him. It's very strange. It's very strange overall that of everyone in this film, it really feels like the costume and makeup department put all of their eggs into Nicolas Cage's age up and age down and no one else. No. So yes, this is my number one problem with this film across the board. I thought that was intentional. So I think it's intentional with Kathleen Turner because Mm -hmm. Kathleen Turner is the one that goes back in time, right? So she looks like her. Like, you're not going to really de-age her. I mean, she looks very good for her age at this point. Um, But 
she looks the same. And it's sort of like that thing where I was like, okay, we're seeing her as she is. Others may be seeing her differently and it doesn't matter because that's makes sense. But what I don't understand is the casting age range in this movie because mm -hmm. the opening uh, scenes in the reunion are upsetting because Kathleen Turner is a decade older or more, or more than some of these people in this movie. I mean, Nicolas Cage is 10 years younger than her. And, um, and then we How have- How old is Jim Carrey? He, Jim Carrey is, uh, was he born in 62? I have to look at that up, but he's younger. Um, he looks like he, a baby. He looks very young. Um, uh, Barry Miller plays the, the rich nerd. Um, he uh, was, uh, I think he's like four years younger than her. Um, and he does a great job in this as well, though I'm not quite sure of his, uh, his real purpose. He played Bobby C in Saturday Night Fever, if anybody's curious for that piece of magic, which I love. And it just was a little unsettling because it felt like Kathleen Turner, and because she has such a sultry, rough, gruff voice, she just seemed like the full cohort before this graduating class. Like she seemed like she would have been a senior going out when this class were freshmen going in. Um, and I, it, it totally threw me off. Eventually I got over it because I think she's a stellar actress, but it was real weird, especially to have Nicolas Cage play opposite her, who until the scene at the very end when they she wakes up in the hospital and he's as greg said clearly aged like they he has stubble his face is more pallid they gave him lines um then he looks the appropriate age um until that point it just looks like it looks like your friend who hits on your mom um who makes you really uncomfortable i'm talking about dave um you know it's like yeah it's just it's just that weird <laughs> setup and um that, that threw me off because, as I said, Francis Ford Coppola is impeccable with, with his films. And that was a, those were bits that just felt strange. Did anyone else catch that? I, did... I actually caught it in both films. Uh, I think that it's, I think it's maybe a sign of, uh, like, the time um, and, like, the way the casting was done. Like, today, if you had a role where somebody was pay playing two ages, even if they're, like, only 10 years apart, You'll, ca you'll generally cast two people for those two roles. I, w I don't say like 100% of the time, but I think in, in uh, the majority of the cases. If they're your leads, then you'll, you'll de-age them technologically yeah. nowadays, unfortunately. Well, sometimes. I mean, yeah, yeah so that, that doesn't always work. Or give them a very distinctly different look. Mm. Like well, younger, you know, like with younger guys. So my take on this, like I, like I said, I thought it was very intentional. So I feel like you notice your own age perhaps more than you notice the ages of others, especially people that you don't see very often. So you might see someone that you knew in high school and your first reaction is, oh my God, you look exactly the same. But like you haven't changed at all. Well, some people look like really old, <laughs> like really different. But like a lot of times I think like your first reaction is like, oh my gosh, like what's your secret? Like you look exactly the same. So it's thought like maybe, and this is, could just be like, a really weird casting thing but like maybe they cast younger people than her because she felt so old going to her reunion but then when she saw people like we were kind of seeing it through her eyes is that everyone seemed and felt younger or felt like back when they were in high school mm. even though she looked and was feeling older than them and then that allowed them to have those same actors 
portray the high school students and still have that gap where like, oh, well, she, we're seeing her as the older person amongst all these younger people. And then the really putting all their eggs in Nick Cage's basket as far as changing how he looks because he was her love interest and like would have aged with her and therefore like needed a very mm. dramatically different look when she saw him again in high school and remembered what it was like when they were in high school together versus this older person that she was separated from. I really like that. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that that falls in line with Coppola's sense of vision because that, that's what most concerned me about it is I didn't get it and normally he's meticulous. Um, and I think there's a lot that is meticulous about this movie regardless. Um, but that does make sense, especially the having to cast uh, people who would look, who could play both ages effectively. Um, and I don't know how successful they are at that most of the time. And they had to have been aware that Kathleen Turner is, is older. Um, in fact, she would have, I mean, at this point, unfortunately for our current state of cinema, she would have well aged out of this role if they were to do this film now. Um, mm -hmm. They've only cast younger and younger and younger, which is ridiculous. Well, I, I still think that has to do with the technology and the changes of time. So you, you cast somebody like that is playing the youngest the role is going to be, and then you use, you know, makeup and... But that wouldn't have made sense guy. because they cast her at her older self. No, I'm saying today. Right, which, like today, yeah. like if you cast that role, you'd cast somebody that's in their, like, you know, low 20s or something and then you use makeup to age them up really effectively and then if you ha if you were going like significantly low uh in terms of age you would just then cast another person that looks pretty similar i'm gonna i think you have a good you have a good idea i'm gonna push back because i think pra this is the practical effect era so it would have been more likely that they would have aged this than they would have aged others. I mean, I think what happened to me, my assumption is, is that they really wanted to work with Kathleen Turner mm -hmm. again. And, mm -hmm. and that was just a necessity. And so because she is, um, she is caked in makeup this entire film uh, to the extreme. And uh, she looks great, but it's sort of that um, no one else is pancaked like her. Uh, and I say that because I think they're clearly trying to, to say, we know that she's older than the rest of the cast. Um, and if we, if we let up at all, it's not gonna work. So she seems, um, and, and I agree, Mandy, I think that it sort of plays to the strength of her character being, feeling out of place. Um, the great thing is, is that you do love her being the adult woman in a kid's body. Like, so when she first, this is my biggest problem with time travel movies is that they do the origin the same every time, which is, where am I? This can't be real. It's like, for Christ's sakes, we've all seen It's a Wonderful Life. We understand what parallel realities and like time, like we understand these tropes. So the instant you see your dead family, I'm pretty sure you're gonna buy into it. Um, but we do get, uh, we do get 20 minutes of her stumbling around talking in the past tense, even though everyone's confused and her not really getting it. Um, which I hate. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. It's like every 90s uh, action movie where we have to have 15 minutes of a guy typing on a computer trying to hack the code. We don't need it. It was a fad. It doesn't need to be there. Luckily with this movie, 
we get some really great scenes out of it. Like when she's with her little sister, played by uh, young Sofia Coppola, who, another interesting casting choice. I think she's a great actress. I love her movies as a director. She's a visionary. She's brilliant. She shares her father's skill. But she looks absolutely nothing like Kathleen Turner and the rest of her family. Um, yeah, she could have been adopted, but I'm not going to I'm not gonna Epitism. buy that. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is, that's true. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, but we get this great scene where she's with her sister and she's just like at this fuck it stage of thinking that she's probably dead anyway. And she just goes, she's supposed to be what, like 16, 18? She just goes into her dad's office and just uncorks the whiskey or scotch and just takes a few glassfuls and is drunk when her dad gets home. And it is, it's funny because she's like, I'm a grown dad. I'm a grown woman dad i can do what i want and of course she's not but she knows that she is inside and it's it, to me that that made me laugh because and also teenagers state crazy stuff like that all the time yeah and she she literally plays the character giving zero shits like and that's sort of the brilliance uh, when it's it's most fun as greg said it is a fun movie a lot of the time most of the time she walks around doing what we all wish we did in high school, right? Um, telling the obnoxious person to, you know, uh, to, eat, you know, bite me. And uh, I'm trying to think of a, a not, not foul way to say it. Um, and she sort of, she goes and talks to the people that she didn't appreciate at the time or didn't get to know at the time. You know, she has a fling. She, uh, when Nicolas Cage is a douchey guy, is like, so in three years we'll break up when I go to college and then I figure we'll get together later after college and uh, we'll get married and have some kids. How's that sound? And she's like, I think we should just break up now and walks out of the car. You know, like those, those moments are great. Um, I'm not gonna say they're totally unexpected, but I think part of that too is that this movie has definitely been done many times since. And I think a lot of those films have taken from this superior model. Um, we'll also remember that, uh, what, a year before or somewhere around there, Back to the Future came out. So time travel, um, family comedies were all the rage. Uh, and I think it's interesting to have someone as high profile as Francis Ford Coppola get in on that um but we don't usually see the fad film genre tackled by such talent what did you guys so i think and jeff i know you said time wise you had to skip around in this movie because of, of a time crunch but also i think it speaks to the fact that there's sort of some muddy water in the middle of this movie where like the character peggy sue i don't really know where she's going um because she's starting to feel trapped because who wants to live their life over again, really? Um, and she has something to live for in the future. Unlike a lot of these movies where uh, they, if you don't really have anything in the future, who cares if you go back, right? Um, she cares because she has children that she loves. Uh, and she's also built a life with her soon to be ex-husband that even though they're getting divorced, she seems to have strong feelings for him. and. In some ways, it's very clear that she is, and I think this is realistic, sort of proud of many of the things that, that they've built as a, as a couple. Um, as she says in the opening scene, I have mixed feelings about your father. You know, like it's not, I hate your father or he's a jerk for dummy and you're know, getting with this younger girl. It's just, it, they've been through 38 years together in the opening, I think she says, which is a lost. It can't even make sense. She can't really be 38 years, but that's what she said. Because if it's a 25-year reunion, what, they got together in like, 
check the timeline on that and check my, my notes. But regardless, they've been together a long time. What? A Coppola calculator here. A Coppola calculator. Well, we'll have um, to use that calculator to figure out how she has kids in the future if she doesn't stay with Cage and leaves him. So that's, that's the other problem. And I think Jeff, I'm sure, will feel for this. The, the technological side of time travel movies is always tough. And it's very wonky, right? Because in the, when she wakes up back in the future at our very quick wrap up, um, she, we know she did change the past because she slept with the beatnik and encouraged him to go off on his own and be a writer. And when she wakes up, everyone's given her flowers and he's given her a book. And, the, and it's um, dedicated to her and a starry night, which is of course mm. when they had, they had their fling. Um, so we know that she changed past or we know that that happened in the past and she remembered it differently, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole. And Nicole's razor says the easiest solution is the right one. I like that they just gave up on it. Like this is the thing that I hate about time travel. Well, well the main thing is, is like, it makes, makes it so like nothing matters. It's like, okay, you can go back and change things and then it rewrites everything. It just, it makes like anything that you actually write beforehand meaningless. Um, but the, Unless you're talking Dragon Ball Z, in which case that that existence still operates. Why? Why are we? I, I was a kid. Come on. I, I, I'm not. I'm not a <laughs> child. I'm just telling I, you that. So anyway. Anyway, the point up. is. The point is. So it, it seems like time travel movies are almost. They all just are like trying to create some sort of logical uh, puzzle, creating. Uh, you know trying to get around all these like paradoxes and stuff i feel like this one's just like all right screw it we're, we're like we're giving up she's just gonna talk to everybody like she's from the future she's gonna like give away secrets and like tell people to do like certain things and it's just like yeah, we just give up on the whole trip yeah she tries to just... give nicholas cage the song uh a beatles song and has had and have him make a hit with it which by the way that's a great turning point when he comes in it's not bad for a first try i changed some stuff <laughs> it's yeah, awful. that was a good joke uh, but anyway yeah so I, I enjoyed that element of it it was just like it made it interesting it was like okay we're just we're having fun with this uh rather than creating some sort of idiotic logic puzzle well, I also like the the impression that they gave of maybe she didn't go back in time, which again is a whole other rabbit hole of right. it was all a dream. But it, yeah, it, it played hard and fast with the rules and just took a different emotional take on, I think, how you would feel being suddenly a teen again. So, and I think that I agree with you, Jeff. I think that when you get to first off, we don't know if it's possible. It depending on where you go theoretically a time machine could be possible somehow somehow but it seems incredibly unlikely in a practical sense so trying to go down some um high science fiction route with time travel is very difficult and it becomes your entire movie you cannot have another plot i firmly believe if you go that route with the movie it has to be about time travel this movie is not that this is the sort of angelic touch movie the as i said before the uh um it's a wonderful life device where there is an event it occurs the freaky friday happening right there's an event it occurs you don't know why and it doesn't matter it's to show a lesson or prove something or give us an emotional takeaway and they do that well and they don't bother um to change it now i do wish the shriners ritual had worked because that would be hilarious because then you would come away from the movie thinking like well I guess the Shriners are the one true religion. 
Uh, I guess that happens. I'd like to see what happens to her life after that point, but that's not how it panned out. So I enjoy this movie. Um, I think that the highlight for me is, I gotta agree with Greg, Nicolas Cage's voice choice is fantastically entertaining. But Kathleen Turner, I think, does a fantastic job. Um, I really like the vibe that she, as an adult, is putting on being a teenager because some things she is much more experienced with. And she says that um, to, to one of the characters, the beatnik, she says like, I'm, I'm or no, she says Nicolas Cage. She's like, I have a, a, a wealth of experience that you just cannot understand. Um, but she is just as susceptible to the teenage tropes of romance and frustration and fear and not knowing. Um, and that comes out as it goes on. And she, she says it herself. She's like, I can't change anything. And I sort of liked that because it's a weird, like, is she talking about fate? Like, is this fate at work? Or is it that we, again, it comes back to what we talked about in Birdie, control. You don't have control over your life. You can do everything you can to exert control over your life and choose a path, but really you don't know what's going to happen. And, and there is nothing to do about it. That's why we don't think about it that way um, because it's too troubling and too difficult to comprehend. So I liked that touch. And that of course seems to be the moment that she is brought back to, to the current time. I'll tell you what is terrifying about this movie to me is I do not want to relive my life. I like where I am finally. I don't want to live it again. Um, and I feel like a lot of movies of this nature, like going back to high school or these things, they sort of feed on the what if of being able to change what you regret. But this one actually incorporated what I would feel as a true thing, which is the paranoia and terror of no longer having what you've worked for in the future and having to relive some of the most difficult things that you've ever experienced again. Like that's a nightmare well, to me. Here, here's the thing for me. Uh, the thing that makes life interesting is surprise and, you know, be the unexpected. Like if your life, if you lived your life again and you didn't have anything unexpected, it would be like a prison sentence. It, you, you'd just be in like a cell locked away. So if you had to live it twice, it really would just be because every, nothing is unexpected. Everything you, you know is coming. It would be very, a very uninteresting life. I think and that's that very much the trope of things like Groundhog's Day or the more recent Palm Springs with Andy Samberg, right? You, you relive these moments over and over again and you've experienced them so much that you're desperate for change and no matter what, you can't change the future and it becomes a nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, in a way... I find Peggy Sue's more terrifying because it's decades of it, right? Like maybe it would be more livable, but it, you just, I couldn't not like, I feel like her vibe when she goes at the end, she gets fed up and she's frustrated and she goes to see her grandparents and that's where she tells them the truth and her grandpa takes her to the Shriners to try and send her back in time. I, I feel like that is the sort of moment where it seems like after that, I don't think she would go back home if it didn't work. It feels like she would just leave altogether. And I think you're, that's what you're getting at, Jeff, is the only way to escape a situation like this is not to live your life over again. It would be go live a brand new life. Um, and, and that's also terrifying in a way because, of course, she's thinking about her children that will never have been at that point. Yeah. So just a very interesting take on the movie. And I think it's, it's fun to think about 
but I agree with you that I'm glad they didn't go down the route of trying to explain this in any way, shape, or form. Because yeah, it would have been just horrible. This would have been a different movie altogether. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think about calling this a romantic comedy? Because I feel like, yeah, Amanda's it's Amanda's not. Giving it's the definitely down. not. Yeah, what, definitely you, not. What you call like this film? I call it a comedy. I mean, yeah. I think it's I think it's funny. I don't think it's meant to be serious. I think the serious is kind of it grounds you for moments, but it's just kind of funny. Family I mean, it, film, it feels maybe kind of like a drama. Like I think it's uh, it's built around her um, her dread of you know losing either either living her life again or the dread of losing her children. Right, like that's I think the basis of the entire film. So I would call it a drama myself. Um, I think that both of you guys are, and Mandy, I think you're all right. I, this is, I have always disliked this term, not because they don't think it's accurate, but because I think it's overused and yet I've used it for both of these movies. I do feel that this is a dramedy, a drama comedy or a comedic drama um, because it is about change. It's sort of, it's sort of like a second coming of age movie, right? It's the post marriage coming of age movie, you know, the, the divorce coming of age movie. Um, and it's interesting that in contemporary, in the last 10 years, we've gotten some new ones of these uh, with the whole, um, uh, you know, this is 40 shtick and all those movies, which I'm going to be honest, I have no patience for, but I think that it's interesting that it sort of tackled that. And again, I think that comes to the idea of probably why they thought Kathleen Turner for this role, because she has played all of the other roles before. And this is her as, and when we say older, I think she's in her late thirties at this point. It's not, she's not old, but she is older than the Hollywood age. And especially now, like I said, it's only gotten younger. Um, I mean, Megan Fox's first role was a stripper at like 15. Thank you, Michael Bay, you pervert. So, um, Michael Bay, come on the show. I'm welcome you. Uh, yeah, so I think I, I think uh, he sure I does think, like it when people uh, you know call him names. <laughs> you know what? I mean, I, I I would love for you to prove me wrong. I would love to have you talk it out and discuss this with me on the podcast. But what I'm gonna say here is that I liked this movie, but I didn't love this movie, and I think. It's because I've, I think Greg, you mentioned this when we were reviewing some other films at the end of last year. I feel like I've seen this movie already and it's probably not this movie's fault. This movie has been taken off by many other movies that have sort of ruined me on it. Does that, anybody else feel that way? It's a reverse 13 going on 30. Well, like you and Jeff both said, and Mandy, I think you talked on it too. It, when you have a time travel film, you are, um, dangerously close to being a fucking terrible movie just because time travel is messy. True. Yeah. And because, like, if you actually think about, like, it, it from just structure, right, from beginning to end, uh, she's mar- uh, she has children and she's in a, a rocky marriage. At the end, she, she does actually uh, go through a change for, for herself throughout, you know, I don't know, whatever the time travel thing was. And then, you know, reconciles with her husband. So it actually, it actually something changed, um, mm-hmm. and it really was her her to change. So it, I think it it doesn't it doesn't fall too too badly into the time travel uh, because because um, she actually grew throughout the film. Like that was the thing that that changed. Not I 
I swapped the toggle back in the history and now it made my life better. I, I hate that stuff. That stuff drives me nuts. The thing that changes is her. So to me, it's not even a time travel movie. Like she, she could have just had a dream, right? You know, mm -hmm. where she just came to the, a different perspective um, over, over that dream and woke up and, and, and had the desire to, uh, you know, make her life better from her perspective so i like it from that that perspective it, it's i i can i can almost imagine it's not a time travel film that the time travel is meaningless um really the only effect is there is a book at the end uh, a personal journey film yeah. Yeah. journey through time or experience yeah yeah exactly and, and that's and i think and I wish we had, maybe we'll, co we'll coin it right here. I was going to say, I wish we had a term for the adult coming of age, that next phase of life. And I think we're going to call it the second coming of age story because second coming is funny. And <laughs> I hope that that catches on because I think this is one of them. This mm -hmm. is the, um, you know, it's not as old, obviously, as like about Schmidt, but it's these movies where we look at a, a slice of life that is neglected in film because the people going to the movies are in their 20s or they're people who wish they were in their 20s. And you know what? That's a bull crap um because uh especially after 2020 i think that uh the new gen xers aka the millennials who are awfully close to gen x to begin with have seen that maybe the 20s don't have to be the best times um and we can live in the future as well so we're gonna move to this and wrap this up i do want to say the most insane thing to watch in this is uh one jim carrey is in this um and he gets to do some fun little Jim Carrey bits, but he mostly plays a straight role. Uh, and Jim Carrey and Nicolas Cage are in a doo-wop group. Uh, and Nicolas Cage sings, and this is not the last time he's sung in, I think he's sang in Wild at Heart. Uh, he's sung in some other films as well. Um, he's not going to say acapella in, a, in several movies. <laughs> yeah, he's not terrible. Um, this movie, uh, this movie has, is considered a classic by many. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's worthy of a watch. I would not put it on the top of my Francis Ford Coppola list, but I might put it at the top of the sort of um, uh, revisiting the past movie list. Let's put it that way, other than time travel, because I do think that it is, uh, it is not a science fiction film. We're going to move into our final stage here. Greg, I'm going to start with you. Who would you recommend Peggy Sue Got Married 1986 to and why? Um, I mean, I'd recommend it to, to anyone for the most part. Um, I think it's tame enough that you could safely watch it with pretty much anyone. Um, I can't think off the top of my head of any scene that I rewatched and was like, woof, versus like with Birdie. Um, from the cage standpoint, I, something I meant to say about Birdie, but I think it's better said about both of these films, and this is who I would recommend it to. If you want to see Nicolas Cage not in a starring role, which you cannot, cannot do anymore, it's fun to kind of go back and see him as in, in this, like you said, supporting male. He's definitely not male lead by any stretch. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, kind of wild to see him not in the spotlight but still coming into being a household name i like that yeah i think i think that's i think that's wise and sort of like we talked about when we did um 
uh, Gary Busey uh, ways back last year uh, when we talked about um, uh, Eye of the Tiger. It's really great to see a character or an actor play a character when we're so used to them being typecast as themselves because they become such a celebrity. Um, and I think Nick Cage, and we'll talk about it as this month goes on, but I think that he should be commended for taking roles where, as you said, Greg, he can play around. He can do different things. Um, Sometimes he's going to be crazy Nick Cage, but other times he's going to be a different character altogether. He's going to work with different things, uh, different uh, physical traits. He's going to do the whole gamut. And there's not a lot of people that are going to do that when they have the, the cash cow that they can rest on, which is just their name. I think he said in some interview, he always, that's kind of how he's picking his roles. Obviously he has some, um, some taxes to pay too, but um, <laughs> he tries, he tries to pick stuff that, gives him something new in some way. And, and I just want to, yeah. I just want to throw this out there too. If anybody's curious, um, I do know someone, uh, a very close friend of mine who has met Nicholas Cage briefly. And in that meeting, granted, they're always narrow meetings, but he was very kind and stayed after at a, at a, a high school basketball game to meet people and shake hands when he certainly didn't have to. And it sounds small, but those are the kind of things that not a lot of celebrities uh, do and a lot of celebrities are angry about when it's asked and it's really nice to get people who frankly are a lot more famous than those other people who are willing to do that um, when it's got to be an inconvenience on many levels uh, but for for us normal people quote unquote this is it makes a difference to us so thanks for that Jeff who would you recommend Peggy Sue got married to and why um yeah I mean I, li I like this movie I, I thought it was a, a good little dramedy as you said um yeah i mean that that particular genre i don't think fits any person really you know you're either gonna you know enjoy the comedy or not but there's um i don't think there's anything particular here um yeah so everyone i guess yeah that's <laughs> that's, that's fair people that's fair humans, humans families and people that they care about and you know maybe some regrets and worries and a good and chance to watch things. and then turn to your loved ones and go i'm so sorry for how i raised you um, <laughs> mandy who would you recommend peggy sue got married to and why i'd say people who are over 30 to 35 is probably going to be the right audience um right. that like drama so um you know self-reflection perhaps um uh, like yeah I don't see this as being a movie that's particularly accessible or interesting to younger people like high school um even like young 20s I they, they probably find it funny they might find like the, the comedic aspects of it but like the the deeper ideas that are being explored are probably just um they're gonna be maybe be like quote-unquote interesting but they're not gonna really resonate I, I like that. I think older. that's wise. I think it's sort of a, I call it a fried green tomatoes moment because sure. that's a film where it has a lot of interest, but if you see it when <laughs> you're a kid, like I did, I was not entertained and I was bored and confused until I saw it as an adult. Um, I was mostly just freaked out by trains for a long trains, time. Right. Yeah. The opening train death. Um, I like when they eat the tax man. Uh, so uh, yeah. So I think that's a good example. I'm going to say I agree 100% with you guys. I think, Mandy, you're right. If you're uh, solidly an adult now, 
Um, watch this movie. You might find a lot to connect with. It is funny. The performances are phenomenal. Uh, Kathleen Turner does an amazing job. Nick Cage is super fun. Lots of cameos. And then I'm also going to say if you're younger, but you like the idea of this, 13 going on 30 um, with Jennifer Garner. It's a super fun film. It's sort of the reverse of this. She's a kid and gets shot forward into her 30s. And it is a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And if you buy the DVD from the first release, it's pink and it smells like bubble gum. So there's some marketing genius right there. There you go. Thank you guys so much, friends and fiends of the pod, for joining us for this first episode of January 2021's New Year's New Nick, Nick Cage Marathon. To play us out, as always, is The Chud with All About Evil. And um, I want to say thank you guys. Thank you so much for making the first year of Colton Classic Podcast a success. And I want to say thank you um, for sending us your suggestions. We use them. We love them. Look forward to really cool things happening in the future. Go over to ColtonClassicPodcast.com. You can listen to our podcast, of course. You can also shop our stuff. We have zines, cards, all sorts of neat things. Follow us, subscribe, recommend, and review. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.